0: Our scripture reading today can be found in your bulletins, on the screen behind me, and in your Bibles, and it's Romans 3, verses 1 through 20. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, lie, God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Ellie Claire. Um, When I was a kid growing up, uh, all I wanted to do, all I wanted to do was play football. Uh, I would ask my parents every season, please let me play football, please. And uh, finally... Uh, they caved, and they let me play, and I got my big chance uh, on the seventh grade football team, which lasted for all of five weeks. Uh, I was almost the same height that I am right now, but about 30 pounds skinnier. Uh, I was a toothpick in pads. These things literally swallowed me alive. You couldn't even find me in them. And uh, a, a couple games into the season, there's this play where... Everybody's, you know, piling on, trying to tackle the kid with the ball, and and I dive in there, and somebody falls on my shin, and it snaps like a twig. I mean, this thing just bent like a coat hanger. I I crumple to a heap on the turf with my foot in places that it's not supposed to be in. I get an emergency ride in an ambulance to the ER, instant surgery and spend the next three or four days in the hospital sharing a room with a new mom and her baby. <laughs> so it was a big educational uh, week for me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've ever been to a hospital before. I spent much time in one. Uh, that, that was my first time. But I think it's a place that, that everybody needs some experience in. Because it doesn't matter if you are old or young, if you are rich or poor, if you're educated or uneducated, if you are impressive or unnoticeable, everyone is in there because they have desperate need, because their their situation is critical, because their life depends on it. Which is exactly what Paul in this passage is trying to get us to see about ourselves. That it it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you have or haven't done. All of us are in desperate need. Only Paul's not uh, showing us this by taking us to a, a hospital room, but a courtroom. See, over the last six weeks, Paul hasn't really been a doctor healing what's hurts, uh, but a lawyer pleading a case. Paul's been building this case against all of us, even himself. And his case is this. It doesn't matter if you're an outsider or an insider. It doesn't matter if you've never read the Bible or read it your whole life. It doesn't matter if this is your first day in church or you never miss a Sunday. All of us are in desperate need. All of us have nothing we can say. All of us have sinned against a good God. And today, Paul, the lawyer, he gives his closing argument, only he's actually not trying to lock us up and throw away the key. But actually, he's trying to set us free. Because here's what everything that Paul has been saying for the last six weeks is driving to. All of us need all of Jesus all the time. All of us need all of Jesus all the time. And so to let Paul's case set us free this morning. We're gonna do three things together. We're gonna hear the argument, we're gonna review the evidence, and then we're gonna accept the defense. So first, we need to hear Paul's arguments. Paul, he starts this passage off imagining the pushback that his fellow Jewish friends might be having to the the desperate need that Paul's saying, apart from Jesus, they're in. And and he's anticipating it would sound something like this. Okay, Paul, are you saying that it is completely meaningless that I'm an insider? That for people in Paul's day, I, I grew up Jewish, is it completely meaningless today to, to be baptized, to grow up in a Christian home, to go to church? Paul, are you saying all of those things are completely meaningless? No, Paul says. No, there are there are so many gifts to growing up with God's word, around God's family, hearing God's promises. No, those things are they, are, they are never meaningless. But they will also never clear the charges that have been brought up against you. Okay, so, so is God not holding up to his end of the bargain then? Is he breaking his promises? Because so many people, Jewish people in Paul's day, so many people today who grow up in a family where Jesus is present, who hear the gospel from from as early as they can remember, don't believe it. So is God not holding up his end of things then? No, No, Paul says. No, the good news of the gospel is that while we are all promise breakers, there will always be one promise keeper. Okay. So then why is God picking on me? Because it sounds like from everything that you've been saying, Paul, my sin, my brokenness, my unguarded heart just gives God the chance to come out looking more faithful, more forgiving, more gracious, more true to his promises. So so why would he judge me? How can he judge me? Because, Paul says, if God doesn't judge the sin of the so-called insider who doesn't believe the gospel, then, then he doesn't have the right to judge anyone else for anything they've done. Then he has nothing to say about the tragedy and trauma that has invaded so many of our lives, then he's cruel. See, Paul's argument is that the problem of our sin is not with God. No, he's good. He's Faithful to his promises, faithful enough to give up. What's most precious to him, his beloved son, just to keep his commitments of grace. And he's just in his judgment. He, he is so committed to beauty, so passionate about goodness, that he will never let the things that mar what and who he's made go unchecked. The problem of our sin, it's not with God, it's with us. It's with me. We can't deflect it. We can't can't blame shift. We can't use things like a personality type to try to explain it away. Which we do, which I do. (laughs) Because we are are by nature natural self-advocates. We, we all have this, this internal lawyer in us that, that rises up to our defense in the face of any accusation. I of mine, right? Rome and Rome, attorneys at law. See their billboards on I-4. We all have this natural impulse to try to exonerate ourselves, to defend ourselves. We stiff arm the truth. We try to keep reality at arm's length. We try to put responsibility for our sin. I try to put responsibility for my sin on anywhere else but me. And Paul here, Paul is instead inviting us to own our sin and the judgment apart from Jesus it deserves, which sounds so oppressive. But it's actually the beginning to liberation, to resurrection. Hope is born in honesty. Wholeness begins with sanity. For Jesus to become wonderful to us at some point, we have to come face to face with who we really are left to our own potential not to turn on ourselves in self-contempt, but to turn to God, looking for grace. When we do, the gospel becomes way more necessary and way more profound than we ever could have imagined. We begin to see just how true it is that, that all of us need all of Jesus all the time. So we've heard the argument. Second, we've got to review the evidence. Paul, he, he seals his argument with Loctite evidence. These rapid fire verses from the Old Testament proving what, what he says in verse 9. What he's been saying the whole last two chapters. Insider, outsider. There is no distinction. Everyone has sin. This anthology of verses starts off by five times over declaring there is no one, there is no one who's righteous, there is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God, there is no one who does good, no, not even one. And now you might hear that and think, well, that sounds a bit pessimistic. I mean, come on, really? Nobody who seeks after God? Nobody who does anything good? I know plenty of people who do. Well, Paul's not saying here that that there aren't people who are trying to find God. Maybe that's you here today. But what he is saying is that apart from God's spirit in us, nobody seeks after God just for God but for what we think we can get out of God. And he's also not saying that that we are completely incapable of doing anything good for people, but that none of those things on their own can get us out from the power of sin and in to the embrace of God. See, sin is in every one of us. And we know that, don't we? I mean, imagine for a second if you had a a notebook that had written in it everything that you thought, said, or did. All right, now imagine for some reason you take this enormous notebook with you out to get a cup of coffee and you accidentally leave it behind. When you realize that, what's your heart rate like? Through the roof. How much money would you pay to get that back? Whatever it takes. Because there are things in there that that we don't want anyone to know about. And I'm not just talking about the silly things like that that you're hooked on the Golden Bachelor right now. (laughs) I'm talking about things that you have done maybe in this past year, maybe in this past week, maybe last night that you would pay a fortune to bury. Sin, it's in every one of us, in every way. Did you notice in those verses how much of the body that Paul described, brain, throat, tongue, mouth, feet, eyes. There is no part of us that sin hasn't left its fingerprints on. If sin was the color green, everything that we think, say, or do would have some tinge of green in it. And that is true regardless of how long you've been a Christian. And what Paul is trying to get us to do with, with this, this list of verses here is to get us to slow down and sit and feel the reality of our sinfulness. And to the degree that we allow ourselves to do that, it shapes our church all the more into a beautiful place, into a hospital for sinners, where it's safe to put down our masks, to put aside our fear of thinking nobody else struggles with what I struggle with to the degree that I struggle with it. A place where it's safe to come and be a sinner who needs Jesus because all of us need all of Jesus all the time. See, what Paul is saying here should make us the least surprised about the sin in us, the most attuned to the brokenness in each other, and the most longing to see Jesus bring healing and hope. It should increase not our complacency, but our compassion for each other, our curiosity with one another our ability to hold the complexity of each other as as cherished sons and daughters of God who still sin and fall short and hurt each other every day, which is something we, we desperately need Jesus to help us do, something I desperately need Jesus in order to do. Sin is in every one of us, in every way. And it leaves us, verse 19, Paul says, silenced. Winston Churchill uh, once was going about his day, just doing his daily business, and, and in the course of that, uh, was incredibly rude to one of his assistants, which wasn't necessarily uncommon. Uh, but this assistant he was pretty bold. And so at the end of the day, he went into Churchill's office and he said, the way that you talked to me today was rude. In fact, it wasn't just unfair, it was wrong. And, and Churchill, he didn't miss a beat. He looked at him and he said, yes, but I'm a great man. See, when we, when we hear Paul's argument and we review the evidence about the sinfulness in all of us, our natural defense is like, like Winston Churchill to tell God, yes, but I've done great things. Yes, but God, look at the way that, that, I'm, that I'm loving people around me, that I'm caring for relationships, that I'm giving and sacrificing and serving. That's got to count for something, right? That's got to outweigh the sin in my life, right? And Paul says, no. No, the the evidence is insurmountable. And when we take it all in, we're speechless. We're silent. Because we realize we can't yes but our way out of this. So we hear the argument, we review the evidence, and lastly, we need to accept the defense. You see, as Paul comes to a close here, the the question that's, that's left hanging is, okay, so what's our hope? What can change our situation? How can we be declared righteous, as Paul puts it? which isn't so much a way of living as much as it is a legal standing. To be declared righteous is to be declared legally right with God, to be legally declared not guilty. So how can we? Because as Paul closes this case, he seemingly closes the door on all of us, even himself, when he says in verse 20, for by works of the law, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The one thing, the one thing that we thought might get us out of this mess, might declare us righteous before the eyes of God, obeying the law, can't. It only accuses us of just how much we keep falling short and deserve to be judged. And yet, as we sit in the silence, we get quiet enough to finally hear God, yes, but us. Because with his next. Breath, Paul says in verse 21, but, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known and given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. In our silence, God breaks through to yes but us. With the gift of declaring us legally righteous and perfectly loved through Jesus. This this is the good news of the gospel. That as the apostle Peter puts it, the righteous one has died for the unrighteous. Jesus was treated as guilty as us so that we can be treated as innocent as Jesus. Jesus. That is the the scandalous kindness of God and the unbridled heart of Jesus, yes, butting us when on the cross Jesus endured the punishment for our sin and accredited to our name his own perfect righteousness, clothed us in his matchless beauty to silence every accusation that could be ever made against us. So as the hymn writer John Newton wrote, hush the law's loud thunder so that when we bank our life on Jesus, there will be no mistrial, no new evidence, no further charges. In heaven's courtroom and the Father's heart, you are as legally untouchable and unwaveringly loved as Jesus so that now in the gospel, the deepest truth about you today is not the worst things that you've done or the best things you've never done, but the best things that Jesus has done. Who risen, vindicated, and at his Father's right hand stands today to take up your case every moment in heaven's court and in our hearts. That First John says, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who when Satan comes with God's law in his hand, ready to shame us, to condemn us, to curse us, to damn us, Jesus proudly rises to our defense with the airtight evidence of his wounded hands inside where love nailed him to a cross in our place. And the Father, looking at Jesus, smiles as they remember and rejoice together about the day they cleared your name forever. And it's an open-shut case. See, we've, we've heard the argument... We've reviewed the evidence. All that's left to do is accept the defense. Find yourself in Romans 3, fallen, sinful, in desperate need, and then collapse onto Jesus. Unload all of your unrighteousness onto Jesus and take on all of his spotless beauty. Let all of your weight fall onto Christ's wonderful love that one pastor in the 1800s wrote is so marvelously great. It's an ocean of love, so fathomless, so boundless, so inexhaustible that you may plunge with all of your unrighteousness, with all of your sins, with all of your sorrows into its fullness, crying out, oh, oh, the depth if when you look inside yourself today, if you are ready to give up hope, if you are weary from trying to plead your own case to God, if you've wrecked your life beyond what you think you can reasonably get back, if you can't forget the failures of your past, if you don't measure up in the present, if you're afraid of what you're capable of in the future, throw yourself into the love of Jesus and cry out, Oh, oh, the depth. His blood is deep enough. His heart is big enough. His risen, vindicated life is beautiful enough to set you before his father's gaze, legally righteous, perfectly loved, endlessly enjoyed. All of us need all of Jesus all the time. Open up, and he's yours. Let's pray, guys. Father, thank you that, that you love us enough to declare to us the depth of our need. Holy Spirit, we need you to come into that need right now, into our silence with God's declaration of grace, forgiveness, and love in the gospel. Spirit, help us in this moment to, co- to collapse on to Jesus, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, and say, Isn't Jesus amazing?